Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, February 18th, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. Our first story by Kathy A. Bolton. Amazon facility property in Bondurant sold for $326.2 million. Officials believe sale price highest ever in Polk County. Property in Bondurant that includes the Amazon AR Sort Fulfillment Center has been sold for $326.2 million, Polk County real estate records show. The transaction is believed to be the highest sale price recorded in Polk County's history. We can't find anything higher, a Polk County assessor told the business record. The property at 532nd Street Southwest in Bondurant was purchased by Virginia-based Capital Square, a national real estate firm that specializes in tax-advantaged real estate investments, including Delaware statutory trusts for Section 1031 exchanges and quality, qualified Opportunity Zone funds for tax deferral and exclusion. It is the second time the property has been sold since it became known that Amazon was locating a fulfillment center on the 167-acre site. In January 2020, Grant Street Project LLC, affiliated with Dallas-based Hillwood, paid Ryan Companies $60.8 million for the property, which at the time was not fully developed. Ryan Companies, based in Minneapolis, was the project's general contractor. The state-of-the-art fulfillment facility, with a gross area of more than 2.69 million square feet, opened in December 2020. The property was among the largest Amazon-occupied properties to go on the market in 2021, according to a news release that announced the parcel was for sale. The original asking price was nearly $355 million, about $300 million of which was an assumption of debt, according to the release. John Kevill, president of U.S. Capital Markets for Avison Young, which marketed the property, told the business record last spring that improvements to the facility, particularly in the area of technology, would create significant tax benefits for a new owner. The next owner is going to be able to accelerate the depreciation of those improvements and in the first year of ownership have a significant tax benefit, he said. Brian Tack, Polk County's chief deputy assessor, wrote in an email that the sale of the Amazon property likely would not have much effect on area warehouse space sale prices. There are multiple factors with this property and its sale that other warehouse properties do not share. Tack wrote, Primarily, Amazon is a highly sought-after tenant niche nationally, and investors are willing to pay more for a building where Amazon is the tenant. Investors are typically willing to pay more for a property with a long-term lease in place, especially a lease to a high-credit tenant, he said. According to a document filed with the Polk County Recorder, Amazon Inc. signed an agreement to lease the facility for 20 years. The lease expires January 31, 2041. The Seattle-based online retailer can extend or renew the lease in five-year increments, according to the agreement. Amazon leases 97% of 
the more than 294.1 million square feet of North American space in which its warehouse and delivery operations are housed, according to information included in its 2020 annual report. The company's 2021 annual report has not yet been released. In November, a New York-based group that pays paid $75.9 million for property at 2300 Shiloh Rose Parkway in Bondurant, on which an Amazon sortation center is located. The property, which includes nearly 50 acres, has been owned by Ryan Companies. The sortation center opened last September. Our next story, written by Business Record staff, What's one trend affecting downtown Des Moines that business leaders should be aware of? In our 2021 Leaders Survey, 73% of respondents said they agreed that downtown small businesses and commercial real estate will suffer if most businesses continue offering remote working to their employees post-pandemic. And another 13% were unsure about the effects. Between changing customer demand and issues with staffing, downtown small businesses are being challenged while office vacancies continue to be higher than they were pre-pandemic. Yet both staple and new events and attractions are continuing on with fervor. Our February 17th Power Breakfast focused on solutions to keep downtown thriving and what the new vision plan might include. The speakers included... Stacy Bennett, Executive Director, Des Moines Downtown Chamber. Marquis Ashworth, entrepreneur, distiller, and developer in Des Moines. Aaron Olson Douglas, Director, Development Services, City of Des Moines. And Tiffany Toshek, Chief Operations Officer, Greater Des Moines Partnership. We asked our speakers to answer. What's one trend affecting downtown Des Moines that business leaders should be aware of? And here's what they said. Bennett. The workforce of downtown Des Moines has changed considerably over the past two years. Many larger organizations are continuing to offer remote and hybrid work options, decreasing the number of workers centralized in some of the larger corporate buildings. However, there has been an increase in downtown residents, with the addition of new housing communities, and many of these residents work from home. We may not see the traditional patterns of downtown foot and car traffic during the work week, but it doesn't mean people aren't downtown during the day. Businesses may need to reevaluate the strategies based on these new patterns of traffic in order to better reach consumers. Ashworth I'd say now, more so than ever, the energy that exists within startup and emerging industries in Iowa is massive. With that comes the needs for not only working capital, but back-end support like accounting, etc. I think current and future business leaders in our market should find ways to not only adapt, but evolve into what is to come. Des Moines as a whole, in terms of business landscape, is undergoing one of its biggest shifts ever, Now's the time to organize. Olson Douglas Events of the past couple of years accelerated the pace of changes that were already in the making. Work was disassociated from place. Goods were being delivered far and wide. Affordable 
affordability of housing markets was concerning. Diversity, inclusion, and equity issues were bubbling. Whether we widely acknowledged them in early 2020 or not, these trends were shaping our downtown. They accelerated through the pandemic and remain impactful today. Des Moines has been wrestling with the competing interests that accompany these cultural changes. We have been working for years to make downtown a favored location for our residents, workers, businesses, and visitors from near and far, with sound investments in infrastructure, housing, and cultural and recreational amenities. More than ever, we need to come together and sharpen our view of what will make downtown DSM a choice destination tomorrow and well into the future. Fewer people have to come downtown. Therefore, it will be imperative that people want to come to our downtown. And Toshek. It may be no surprise for business leaders to hear that employers are offering more flexibility than ever to employees. This gives us an opportunity to look at downtown programming and amenities differently. We must position downtown to be a place people want to be all days and times. One trend we are finding is that cultural events, activations, and attractions are a top way to draw people downtown. Events such as the World Food and Music Festival, Downtown Farmers Market presented by Unity Point Health Des Moines, and DSM Book Festival, as well as pop-up activations such as Downtown DSM Tweet Week, Hide and Seek Ornaments You Keep, Out to Lunch, The Great DSM Hot Air Balloon Hunt, and more drive people to experience downtown. We believe major projects such as the Iowa Confluence Icon, Water Trails, and Pro-Iowa Soccer Stadium and Global Plaza will enhance the recreational and cultural offerings we already have and give people another reason to come downtown, socialize with family and friends, and support local businesses while they are here. This is everyone's downtown, 365 days a year. From the Fearless column, Entering year three of COVID-19, two Central Iowa physicians reflect on what's changed and what remains the same. By Emily Kestel, Fearless Editor. One year ago, vaccinations against COVID-19 were just becoming widely available. Healthcare workers were optimistic that the public would largely accept the vaccine and the light at the end of the tunnel was nearing. Close to 500,000 Americans had died from COVID-19, 5,000 of them Iowans. Now the national death toll is more than 900,000, and the death toll in Iowa is more than 8,600. Just over 60% of Iowans are fully vaccinated against COVID, and the Omicron variant led to an increase in hospitalization numbers not seen since the latter half of 2020. Staffing shortages spurred by positive COVID tests and an increase in healthcare workers quitting have pushed hospitals across the country to near breaking points. Mercy One spokesperson Marcy Peterson said Mercy One is experiencing a, quote, critical staffing shortage, end quote, and seeing higher turnover rates, shortened careers, and early retirements. Women hold more than 75% of healthcare jobs and make up more than one-third of all physicians in the U.S. 
However, research shows that female physicians experience higher rates of burnout and depression. We checked in with two female physicians at Mercy One Des Moines whom we spoke with last year to see what they're currently facing. Dr. Anissa Afroz is an infectious disease consulting physician, president of medical staff and director for antimicrobial stewardship at Mercy One. Last year, Afroz expressed concern about lasting mental health consequences as a result of witnessing so much death and hoped for a quick return to normalcy. At that time, she said, although counseling was offered by administrative leadership, healthcare workers had no time for it. We have no time to pause and seek help for ourselves at this time, she said. Now, Afroz continues to illustrate the mental health effects on healthcare workers, but questions whether a return to normal is in the immediate future. The following remarks have been edited and condensed for clarity and have been formatted to be in her own words. Although the view of the pandemic has changed, the misery and frustrations have not. We still live in fear and have flashbacks of what we've seen and been through. Each and every person on the front lines is facing mental health challenges. They are still going on and on without a stop date. Many frontline healthcare workers have sought mental health services for depression and PTSD. I think people are wanting to focus on themselves before they shatter. Never in my life did I think I would talk to a counselor, but there was a time that I had to seek one out. One of my colleagues encouraged me to reach out after she had done it. She gave me the counselor's phone number. I sat on it for almost two months. Physicians especially think that we're very resilient and we can overcome anything ourselves. I couldn't make myself call and set up the appointment. So I texted the counselor. I did three telehealth sessions. I realized although they may not know what you're facing, there are people who will still listen and give you tips here and there. I think that really helps. Support from family, friends, and the community is very important. I wish I could be optimistic, but the desire to get back to a normal life is kind of fading away a little bit, although it's still there. Healthcare workers are questioning, is this our new normal? How long is it going to go on? Will we ever get our lives back again? I think it will take a long, long time. We all fight to save every life. There are many, many people who are grateful for care and for the nurses at their bedside. But there's also a lot of negativity around healthcare workers, and that has affected some people. Last year, there was so much empathy, compassion, and feeling bad for the patients who were sick and dying because there was nothing we could really do. But we have a few weapons that we can now use to protect people and help curb this pandemic. For healthcare workers, I think the compassion fatigue has set in. I think those emotions have turned into more anger and frustration, especially when they see unvaccinated people or people who don't believe in masking. Many healthcare workers have sort of given up in the sense that we're not going to lecture people regarding vaccinations if they're not vaccinated. Everybody's tired of talking about the same thing again and again and again.
It just drains you. It exhausts you. Sometimes by the end of the day, you're just so tired. You're like, they're not going to hear us anyway, so why spend another 15 minutes explaining? It's good that many, many people get over it, but we see the misery, the devastation. We don't see the people who are sitting at home and getting over this. It's going to take a while to get over all these things, the sleepless nights or the flashbacks that you have of people who were dying or people who were really sick. I think everybody feels that there is no end to it. The damage is still happening. We're not even in the recovery phase. There are days, especially for frontline workers, where you just feel like you want to stop and run away from here. But then you also realize that you've signed up for this because you want to help people. That makes you come to work every day. Even though you come in with a heavy heart thinking, I am going to be exhausted by the end of the day, you still come the next day. We have to tell ourselves that every day is not going to be the same. And eventually, we are going to have some good days. I use the word devastation a lot nowadays. With all that has happened, it's like a part of your soul dies. The light of your soul dims off with some of the really emotionally draining days. The negativity against physicians, providers, and nurses should end. I want people to believe the misery, the emotional toll that all this devastation has taken on us. We want to be positive, but we have to see something positive out there. Dr. Sidney Leach is an emergency department physician and the associate director of the emergency department at Mercy One Des Moines. Last year, Leach said she was, quote, cautiously optimistic, end quote, that the end was nearing. Using the metaphor of a marathon to describe the pandemic, she said she thought we were on mile 17. Though she still maintains her optimism that COVID will eventually become something like the annual flu, Leach now thinks we're at mile 20 or 21. We're hitting that wall. We're just chugging through this and we're not progressing. The miles are not progressing as quickly, she said. The following remarks have been edited and condensed for clarity and have been formatted to be in her own words. A year ago, there was still some trepidation about the unknowns of COVID-19 and how we would be able to treat it. It was new enough that it still felt a little bit unusual. Now it seems just so much more common, so the newness of it has worn off. There used to be a lot of explanation with someone and fear for the patient and maybe a little bit from the provider when you were telling someone they've tested positive for COVID-19. There was this sort of feeling like, gosh, I don't know what the course of this is going to be. I don't really have many, if any, treatments to offer. We don't know how to take care of this other than to give supportive care and oxygen. Now, when I explain to somebody that they have COVID, they're so, not so surprised and fearful. It's kind of like telling someone you've tested positive for influenza or RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. When we happen to be diagnosing COVID and someone's had their full vaccine, generally I'm pretty confident that the odds are in their favor and they're going to be just fine. 
but we're still seeing cases that have been, unfortunately, really, really severe. There's still been deaths associated with it, though it's been a bit less. There's been a huge amount of people getting it. This wave has been unbelievable as far as the number of people that have ended up in the emergency room with it. I think it has gotten difficult for all of us in medicine knowing that this is preventable. It's getting difficult to see really sick patients who come in and are not vaccinated. We've been preaching this for over a year now. Please get your vaccine. Please get your booster. It's going to cut down on the spread for everyone, but it's most importantly going to affect you and your personal outcome if you or your loved one gets it. That juxtaposition of what you can find on the internet or from a layperson versus what the medical community has actually proven has been hard. It's a position that we haven't been in medicine that much, at least in my career. It's really, really hard to face that. The frustrating part is they're not only exposing themselves, but they're exposing me as a healthcare provider and my family and my team and the staff. It then takes off part of our workforce because a certain percentage of us will catch it. We're working so short all the time. It's just frustrating. We could potentially have had a better handle on this had you made a choice for the public rather than your own individual choice. You didn't take into account the greater good of your community, your hospitals, the public health system, and your schools. We have increasing numbers of people to take care of and a decreased number of people to take care of them. That has continued since month two or three of the pandemic. We've lost a lot of our workforce and wonderful people from our profession that just got tired of it or or are looking for something different. I don't know anybody who works in the emergency department who hasn't had some signs of burnout. How that manifests for each one of us can be different. For me, sometimes it might be the lack of the excitement about going into work every day, thinking I'd rather work less hours or less shifts because it's grueling when I'm there. Sometimes it can be trouble sleeping with the thought of the sickness of the patients and the worries of where this pandemic is headed. One thing that's big for me and for a lot of people is the loss of that emotional connection with your patients. If you're seeing a lot of sick people, it can be hard to make that emotional connection with each and every one of them. It's extremely gratifying to help someone. So when you stop thinking about why you're there and why you're helping someone and how much you love to do that, that's also a sign of burnout. That happens from time to time, especially with the more challenging conditions or the number of patients we're required to take care of. It's been difficult for everyone to process how quickly things can change. I've never been in a situation in my life where all of a sudden, one week you've got plans for vacation, and then the next week things are shut down. I think we have seen a huge uptick in patients struggling with mental health issues as a result of how quickly things change, which has maybe led to some anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, and grief. That's something that we suddenly are having to deal with in the ER too. Just a huge number of people with mental health conditions. We never would have predicted that we'd need all of these therapists and psychiatrists and whatnot. 
I have a friend who I work with who said, don't let a good crisis go to waste. I think we all need to personally take stock of where we are, where we were before, and where we want to be. For some of us, this pandemic has given us a chance to take a step back and really think about things that are important to us in our lives. I still enjoy my job. I still like working to make things better. I like supporting my colleagues. I love working with my teams of nurses. I like it when we're all having a good day together and helping people. I think that we all just need to work on treating each other with a little bit of grace and forgiveness. From the Business Record Notebook, BTC Financial Corp. Makes Changes to Trust's Advisory Boards by Joe Gardiaz. BTC Financial Corp., the holding company for Iowa's largest privately owned bank, Bankers Trust, in Des Moines, recently applied to make changes to its roster of advisory board members for the trusts that own the holding company. In an application filed January 4th with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and the Iowa Division of Banking, BTC Financial sought approval to appoint John Ruan IV as trustee of Ruan BTC Trust, which owns 97.97% of the voting shares of BTC Financial Corp., and Ruan Trust, which owns the remaining 2.03%. Once the application is approved, Ruan IV will succeed his late father, John Ruan III, as trustee of both Ruan BTC Trust and Ruan Trust. The application also seeks to replace the late David Fisher, who also died in 2021, with James Hale Hoke, president of Hoke and Company, an investment holding company based in Dallas. The January filing with the Federal Reserve also formally requests adding James H. Windsor IV of Chicago, who succeeded Suku Radia, retired Bankers Trust CEO, as an advisory board member in October 2017. Windsor was not officially added in 2017 due to an oversight with the retirement of an outside counsel, BTC Financial said in its filing. Thomas R. Schaefer will remain as an advisory board member, and J. Landis Martin will resign as an advisory board member of both trusts when the application for change in control is approved. One advisory board seat will remain unfilled. Hoke, Windsor, and Schaefer each also serve on Ruan Inc.'s board of directors. As part of the Ruan family's succession plan, John Ruan IV assumed the role of chairman of the Bankers Trust Board of Directors in May 2021 and of the BTC Financial Corp. Holding Company Board, including BTC Capital Management and the other businesses within the Ruan family of companies, in August 2021, with the guidance and support of the boards of directors and executive teams. BTC Financial Corp. had $5.84 billion in total assets and $527.6 million in equity capital as of September 30, 2021, according to data posted by BankNet. Our next story, Hotel Restoration Project Moving Forward with Tax Credit Award by Kathy A. Bolton. 
A plan is moving forward to return property in Des Moines to its original use as a hotel after the redevelopment project was awarded $4.9 million from Iowa's Historic Preservation Tax Credit Program. The project at 2525 Grand Avenue is also expected to receive about $3.8 million in federal historic tax credits. We now have two of the critical pieces put together to be able to complete the capital stack, said developer Jake Christensen, who in fall 2019 revealed plans to restore a three-story structure between Grand and Ingersoll Avenues to a hotel. The building opened in 1962 as a Howard Johnson Motor Lodge. About 25 years later, it was converted to apartments. The redevelopment project includes renovating the building to have the look and feel of a 1950s or 60s hotel. Christensen put the project on hold shortly after the start of the pandemic. The past two years, however, have reinforced that travelers want to stay in unique places, Christensen said. Travelers are looking for unique lodging opportunities in areas or neighborhoods that offer restaurants and other amenities, he said. Being on the edge of downtown and in a burgeoning corridor, we feel is a good place to be. Activity along Ingersoll Avenue includes a $17 million streetscape project that involves reconstruction of the street between Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and 31st Street. The project, which is expected to be completed this year, includes installation of new storm sewers, sidewalk widening, upgraded bus stops, burying overhead utility wires, new pedestrian crossings, landscaping, and elevated bike lanes. Other development in the area includes the remodeling of a former fast food restaurant at 2510 Ingersoll Avenue into a Starbucks coffee house. Farther east, Big Grove Brewery is opening a craft beer brewery and taproom at about 17th Street and Ingersoll Avenue. Christensen said inflation and the material shortage has caused the project's cost to increase. However, he said the state and federal tax credit awards are based on qualified expenditures that include construction costs. Before the pandemic, the project was estimated at at $18.3 million. Updated development costs were not immediately available. Redevelopment of the structure is expected to begin in May and take about one year to complete. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, February 18, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Our next story, a deeper dive on Mercy One's collaboration with Genesis Health System. Agreement seeks to advance value-based care, lower health costs. By Joe Gardiaz. Mercy One and Genesis Health System recently announced that they have entered an agreement for Genesis to join Mercy One's Partnered Provider Network. The partnership was developed to pursue collaboration opportunities, the health systems said. The multi-year agreement will focus on leveraging the joint expertise in population health and expand value-based health care through their respective regions, Mercy One and Genesis said in a joint statement. Based in Davenport, Genesis serves a 17-county, bi-state region of the Quad Cities metropolitan area and the surrounding communities of Iowa and Illinois. 
Our organizations share a deep commitment to the health of our members, the communities we serve, and furthering value-based care, said Derek Novak, president of Mercy One Population Health Services Organization, a unit of Des Moines-based Mercy One. By combining our strengths in population health and geographies served, we are uniquely positioned to improve health in our communities and reduce the total cost of care. We look forward to working together to improve outcomes for those we are privileged to serve, he said. Founded in 2012, Mercy One PHSO was created to leverage the organization's experience in population health to expand into commercial and governmental value risk-based programs. Its portfolio has since grown to more than 20 value-based agreements, covering over 315,000 attributed patients throughout Iowa and neighboring states. Since inception, Mercy One PHSO's Partnered Provider Network estimates it has reduced healthcare expenditures for Iowans by more than $145 million by working together to improve health, increase patient satisfaction, and lower health care costs, according to its website. The Mercy One Population Health Services Organization's Partnered Provider Network is branded as Incirca Health Network. The Mercy One and Genesis Partnership will be known as Incirca Health Network, powered by Mercy One and Genesis Health. I connected with Darren Novak via Zoom to learn more about the collaboration. How many patients does this bring together under Incirca Health Network? Today, under Mercy One PHSO, we have right around 330,000 covered lives. That's the number of arrangements under Medicaid, commercial insurance, Medicaid Advantage, really any product segment of insurance. Genesis, given the newness of the arrangement, we haven't gotten into specifics around what they hold for health insurance risk contracts, but they have a sizable population they're working with in the Quad Cities market, in the neighborhood of 70 to 100,000 lives. Our arrangement is not necessarily to disrupt existing contracts, but rather to look for areas where we can partner and bring incremental value to those patient populations. What are some of the most common or likely areas that will be looked at for collaboration? Really, one of the unique components of Mercy One PHSO is that we've gone through an accreditation process for our case management and population services that we provide. So we are one of the very few National Committee for Quality Assurance accredited organizations in the U.S. that's not a payer but we've actually gone through a process similar to what a payer has. So we see that as a key collaborative opportunity to extend those standards, where it makes sense for both organizations for a more robust network and coordination of care across the geography. There is really a different level of collaboration that occurs with all value-based insurance brands. So we're collaborating to look for ways to partner with those payers to reduce duplication of services, looking for members that are defined as high risk who have multiple health conditions. That's really where our health coaching or management comes into play. 
We're really looking to coordinate care differently and look for ways that we can reduce adverse outcomes and reduce unnecessarily unnecessary utilization. What benefits could the Mercy One Genesis collaboration have for Iowa employers? Specific to the Genesis component, for those employers that maybe have a location in the Quad Cities market that also have a location here in the Des Moines metro, I think that represents another opportunity in the market. Having that additional location of the Quad Cities will be beneficial for member continuity. Are there potential partnerships with other health systems that Mercy One is looking at next? I would just say that we're always looking at opportunities to grow the network and ultimately to provide care where Iowans reside, especially as we start talking about locations outside of the state. From the On Leadership column, What Not to Do During Black History Month by Susanna DeBaca, President and CEO, Business Publications Corp. When I mentioned to a diversity, equity, inclusion, DEI, professional, that I was planning to write a column on Black History Month, she commented that if we are only approaching DEI work in regards to a specific month, quote, we aren't embedding the work and it really won't change our world's outcomes, end quote. I couldn't agree more. But that doesn't mean we should miss the opportunity to intentionally honor the history and contributions of Black Americans during a special time each year. Yet many business leaders are not sure of the best way to approach Black History Month. Why celebrate Black History Month? Nearly 100 years ago, Carter G. Woodson, the scholar often referred to as the, quote, father of Black history, was inspired to honor black history and heritage through Negro History Week. Woodson, the son of formerly enslaved people who went on to earn a Ph.D. from Harvard University, specifically selected February for this effort because it was the month in which both abolitionist leader Frederick Douglass and President Abraham Lincoln were born. Over time, the celebration evolved, and in 1976, President Gerald Ford drew on the significance of the Bicentennial and expanded Black History Week to Black History Month. This year's White House Proclamation on Black History Month states, Each February, National Black History Month serves as both a celebration and a powerful reminder that black history is American history, Black culture is American culture, and black stories are essential to the ongoing story of America. Our faults, our struggles, our progress, and our aspirations. For business leaders, Black History Month provides a powerful opportunity to connect with your employees and advance conversations around racial equity. I asked local DEI leaders to weigh in on some do's and don'ts for leaders to make the most of Black History Month. Marvin DeGere, Ph.D., Senior Vice President of Talent Development with the Greater Des Moines Partnership, said, Leaders should not waste an opportunity to lift up African-American contributions to their industry, their company, and their organizations. While it is noteworthy to talk about charity, it is necessary to talk about contributions. 
During this month, leaders should go above and beyond to celebrate the African-American community. And if your plan is to be intentional, leaders should use this month to evaluate and address how you will continue your efforts year-round. Rayma McCoy-Hyten, CEO, Rayma McCoy-Hyten, SPB, LLC. Black History Month is an opportunity for leaders to investigate the black history of their sector, which may be replete with unsung heroes or unacknowledged achievements, achievements that play a role in the successes of the sector today. It's a time to commit to ensuring that the history of excluding and diminishing the efforts of black colleagues doesn't repeat itself. Sharon Perry Fantini, Ph.D., Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Iowa State University. This is an excellent opportunity to gain new knowledge and understand the importance of the month along with the origin. Once you've educated yourself, advance forward by bringing others along the educational journey. This fosters collaboration and positive team camaraderie. Sanjita Pradhan President and Chief Consultant Sanjita Pradhan Consulting. In honoring Black History Month, make your actions meaningful. Don't just do something performative like a token social media post. Depending on where you are in your journey, pick something that works for you. It can be as small as reading a book and sharing that knowledge or as large as donating or sponsoring black-serving organizations or acting on policy change. Claudia Schabel, President and CEO, Schabel Solutions. The story of Black History Month begins in 1915, half a century after the 13th Amendment abolished slavery in the United States. Leaders should not ignore black history. Black history is U.S. history. Leaders should promote understanding of the central role of African Black Americans in U.S. history and commit to developing and implementing sustainable DEI efforts. Best practices to engage your team during Black History Month and every month. Study history. Studying history is one of the best ways to understand systemic issues in the U.S., says Shabel, who encourages leaders to embrace self-education, adding, Conduct your research using only credible sources of information. As you learn, share that information with your team. Be authentic and intentional. To be effective, how you recognize Black History Month should fit into your company's strategy and your leadership style. Pradhan advises, Depending on your position of power and privilege, pick activities that work for you and align them to your comprehensive DEI plan. Involve everyone. Black History Month is for everyone, not just your black employees, so use the time to build awareness and foster meaningful dialogue. If you do top, tap black individuals for training on this topic, remunerate them appropriately for that work. Promote black achievements. Perry Fantini encourages leaders to lift up the contributions and accomplishments of the black community, saying, Consider starting a book club around black literature, 
host a cultural celebration, or engage in ways that promote Black achievements. Challenge yourself. Do not let your possible discomfort with conversations about race get in the way of highlighting important issues during Black History Month and all year long. Says Dajir, don't get out of your comfort zone, expand it. Commit to real change. Understand that Department of Labor rules and human resources policies can only protect Black employees so much says McCoy Heighton. She asserts that committing to real systemic and cultural change is the simple solution to ensuring that the workplace can attain and maintain true inclusivity. In our next story, growth in e-commerce is fueling industrial space construction. More than 2.2 million square feet expected to be built in 2022 in Des Moines area by Kathy A. Bolton. The amount of industrial space in the greater Des Moines area increased by 12 million square feet in the past decade, with more than half of the space added since 2018. A review of CBRE Hubble Commercial's annual market reports shows. In 2021, the Des Moines area had more than 6.1 million square feet of industrial space, nearly 25% more than the 49.2 million square feet available in 2012, according to the reports. Nearly 12 million square feet of industrial space has been added since 2012. 6.6 million square feet, or 55% of that, has been added since 2018 and construction of additional industrial space, which includes the subsections of warehouse and distribution, manufacturing and flex, doesn't appear to be slowing. We're seeing the vacancy rates get lower and lower, and the amount of product that is out there on the market right now is minimal, said Michael Anthony, Senior Project Manager for Opus Design Build LLC, which is headquartered in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and has offices in Clive. In October, the Opus Group began construction on a 296,300-square-foot speculative industrial building in its Swanwood Logistics Center, located east of Interstate Highway 35 and south of Southeast Corporate Woods Drive in Ankeny. It is the second building in the development, which also includes a built-to-suit project for Brown Warehouse Company. Opus is also building two warehouses at Northridge 8035, a 60-acre speculative development on the northern edge of Des Moines. There is continuing to be a need to get that warehouse space closer to those end users, Anthony said. E-commerce in the United States was already growing at a rapid rate before the pandemic, which hit the United States in March 2020. COVID and the shelter-in-place mandates that came with it accelerated the growth as an increasing number of people became comfortable with ordering a range of products online, including groceries, paper and cleaning products, clothing, and workout equipment. Not only did consumers get more comfortable with online shopping, they also began expecting their orders to arrive at their homes within 24 to 48 hours of placing an order. In addition, businesses that order products or supplies online now expect their orders to be filled within a couple of days. 
If you're a company that does brake pad repairs and you have a client that brings in their vehicle to the shop on Thursday and you need to order a part, you want it by Friday, said Marcus Pitts, managing director of JLL's Des Moines office. That consumer mindset that has evolved on the residential side and has driven the demand for more warehouse space has taken hold on the commercial side as well. Businesses that place an order online expect to have it at least within a couple days, if not the next day, he said. The expectation for products ordered online to be quickly delivered means storing the items closer to where consumers are located, and the demand is expected to continue past the end of the pandemic. Pitts said, once people have learned that behavior and that expectation, I don't see that expectation stopping. It is going to become the new norm. In the Des Moines area, most of the ground available on which to develop industrial projects is near Interstate Highways 35 and 80. The proximity to the interstates and the mostly flat terrain make the area attractive to developers, Pitt said. Construction of more than 1.4 million square feet of industrial space is expected to be completed in 2022, a 30% increase over the previous five-year average of 996,586 square feet, according to CBRE Hubble's market report. Two-thirds of the new space expected to be completed in 2022 is in the northeast sub-market. Among the projects underway are... Building four of Graham Warehouse's Anderson Warehouse Development north of Interstate 80 in Altoona. The 300,000-square-foot warehouse is expected to be completed in 2022's third quarter. The first phase of Northridge 8035, which is expected to add over 1 million square feet of Class A industrial space to the metro area. The first phase includes two buildings— designed to accommodate a range of uses, including logistics, distribution, e-commerce, and manufacturing. A 164,000-square-foot building will offer 17 dock doors, expandable up to 39, four drive-in doors, and 101 parking stalls. A 186,300-square-foot building will offer 21 dock doors, expandable up to 50, four drive-in doors, and 121 parking stalls. The buildings are expected to be ready for occupancy in 2022's third quarter. Opus is the developer, design builder, and architect and structural engineer. Buildings 1 and 2 in the Altus Commerce Center, located on a 75-acre site at Northeast 62nd Avenue and Northeast Hubble Alt, Avenue in Altoona. The project's developer is Van Trust Real Estate, a Kansas City-based full-service real estate development company. A 265,200-square-foot warehouse is expected to be completed by the third quarter of 2020. A 496,800-square-foot building is expected to be completed by early 2023. Building 1 of the I-80 Distribution Center at 451 9th Street Northeast in Altoona. The speculative warehouse will include 300,000 square feet of space and is expected to be completed in early 2023. Building 2 in Crosswoods Business Park in Ankeny. 
The 220,777 square foot building by Opus is expected to be completed by the third quarter of 2022. The 296,300 square foot speculative industrial building in its Swanwood Logistics Center also being developed and built by Opus. At least three other projects are expected to break ground yet this year, according to the CBRE Hubble report. R&R Realty Group is expected to start two projects, a 260,000-square-foot structure in Grimes Prairie Business Park and a 212,500-square-foot building in Urbandale's Centerpoint Business Park. In addition, Ankeny-based ATI Group purchased land in Grimes and plans to build up to 1.3 million square feet of warehouse space in a phased development, according to the report. Grimes City Administrator Jake Anderson said the city welcomes the additional industrial development. It doesn't put a tremendous amount of load on our utilities, and it's been great for our tax base, he said. Anderson said a lot of Grimes' increase in assessed valuation was from flexible warehouse spaces. In 2021, the assessed valuation of all of Grimes' property totaled $1.98 billion, according to the Polk County Assessor's Annual Report. In 2019, Grimes' valuation totaled $1.73 billion. We expect to see the industrial segment continue to grow in the next few years, Anderson said. Just 3.6% of the Des Moines area's industrial and warehouse space is vacant, as more than 1.4 million square feet was absorbed in 2021, according to CBRE Hubble Commercial's 2021 fourth quarter industrial market report. A year ago, 3.3 million square feet of industrial space, or 5.4%, was vacant, according to Hubble's 2020 year-end report. Currently, 2.2 million square feet of industrial space is vacant, according to the report. Warehouse and distribution vacancy rates range from 1.9% in the northeast part of the market to 5.3% in the western suburbs. The average asking rent in the fourth quarter was $5.43 per square foot. In the first quarter of 2018, the average lease rate was $4.80 per square foot. In the past 10 years, the Greater Des Moines area has added nearly 12 million square feet of warehouse, manufacturing, and flex space, all subcategories of the industrial market, CBRE Hubble's reports show. More than 8.5 million square feet of the new space has been warehouse. The northwest part of the Des Moines area added 4.6 million square feet of industrial space in the past 10 years, accounting for 39% of the metro area's new warehouse, manufacturing, and flex space. And that does it for today's reading of the business record for Friday, February 18, 2022. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. What exactly is fossil water, and why have we consumed so much of it? No, it's not a new brand of bottled water imported from the days of dinosaurs. Fossil water came from melting ice sheets, ancient lake systems, and a generally wetter climate tens to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It percolated into porous rocks, which were then buried under deep layers of sediment, where it was sealed off from the surface, and there it stayed, until farmers discovered it. And in the second half of the 20th century, they started drilling wells into fossil aquifers and pumping like mad, turning sunny, dry places into acres and acres of green farmland. Crop supplies boomed. Food became cheaper and more plentiful, grown in formerly parched places like California and Kansas, and shipped around the world for people like you and me to eat, ingesting fossil water with it. The trouble is, fossil water is a finite resource, and new studies suggest that many fossil aquifers may become depleted this century, so that we won't be able to rely on them any longer. This could mean that the crops that depend on them could become less plentiful and more expensive again. All the while, population will likely increase, the climate will likely warm, our demand for water will continue to climb, which means we'll have to adapt to the lack of fossil water just as we adapted to its discovery, this time with more efficient crops and farming methods and more efficient use. For Earth Date, I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.